If you have your Bibles, um, take them and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Um, Acts chapter 6, and uh, <coughs> we're going to spend a, a couple minutes um, looking at this uh, instance in, in, uh, in the church of Acts as we continue to work our way through the book. And um, uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll take a fairly large chunk of Scripture and get all the way to chapter 8. Uh, and so we have that ability to go slower, go fast, and uh, so we're just going to slow her down just a tad um, tonight. And one of the, uh, the things that has been brought to my attention again and again through reading the book of Acts is that um, it's not just about physical realities. That the book of Acts is about spiritual realities. And we've seen these in various ways. We looked at them last week in particular, um, how that uh, uh, some were delivered from unclean spirits. Uh, we saw how an angel uh, of the Lord came and when uh, the apostles were in prison, uh, the angel of the Lord was able to, to, to open the prison doors and to blind the eyes of the guards and to bring the apostles out. And in the morning, they didn't know what happened and they thought they were still in jail. And so we see the power of, of, of God at work um, in supernatural ways. And the reality is, is that even when you face the church, uh, and this is somewhat of a maybe an in-house um, discussion tonight, but when we face the church, there are spiritual realities and spiritual battles that we go through as a church. And uh, one individual that I was um, looking at uh, about this particular passage uh, puts it this way. He says, the devil's next attack was the cleverest. Having failed to overcome the church either by persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. And I think it's important that we understand this as a, as a family of God and we understand it not only as um, individuals that we are in a spiritual battle, but as a church, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And uh, that uh, Satan hates the people of God and Satan hates the church of God. And so he is out to do whatever he can to do to distract and to disrupt and to destroy the people of God and the church of God. The amazing thing, though, that we learn from Scripture is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So we know who's going to win, but there are a lot of skirmishes along the way. And so the first way that we saw Satan try and get at the church was through persecution. And you think, well, that's a pretty good way of doing it. Beat up the people who are, who are naming the name of Christ. Give them a rough time. Um, try and put fear in them. Try and put pain in their bodies. And they will no longer be excited about being uh, followers of Jesus. But we see that had the opposite effect on the people. Because it says they, when they were beat up and when they were persecuted, they went into a room and they prayed for more boldness. They prayed that they would even be greater witnesses for Jesus. So that didn't work. So then we find uh, the next sort of assault on, uh, uh, by Satan was to try and infect the church with hypocrisy and to try and get at the people of God. And so we saw that through the story of Ananias and Sapphira who thought that um, they would like to be in on a good thing but didn't want to give a good thing. And so they lied about what they were uh, giving to the church because they just decided that they would lie. And we, end, uh, we read at the end of that that uh, God saw through their hypocrisy and in, in a very unique way, both of them breathed their last and were carried out of the church uh, on stretchers and buried. And so what happened at the end of that was not that uh, the church was disbanded, not that it fell apart, but in fact we find that the church grew even more. 
that as the purity of the church was emphasized and as the power of God was revealed in the church, it drew people to Christ. And so that failed as well. So now we see another tactic of the devil as he tries to scheme against the church and tries to destroy it again. And this time, he tries to do it from the inside out. He tries to attack the very health of the church um, from the inside out. And I just want to look at this from the point of view of, uh, I've called it a family crisis. And they're just things that I scribble down and, and uh, my thoughts are not completely full, but I hope they will come across um, with some kind of clarity. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Let's read it uh, together and then we'll, we'll make a few more comments about it. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Farmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These were set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this time now to look at your word in this particular passage of scripture. Uh, Father, we need your help. Um, We need your help to understand it. We need your help to understand how it makes a difference in our lives and how it impacts this church. Uh, And so, God, would you make the book live? Would you make it live in my heart and through my words? And would you make it live in the hearts and lives of those who are here tonight? We pray this in the amazing and the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so, so what, what we have here is we have a family crisis that strikes the church. And, and uh, there's a problem that arises in this, uh, this early church, a problem uh, that arises in the family. And the family is one of the, the, the best metaphors for the church. You find it throughout the Bible. And I think it helps describe the organic reality uh, of life. And so the church is often called a family. And so there's a problem that strikes this, uh, this, this new young church, this new family. And sometimes the biggest um, uh, uh, attacks come not from outside of the family, but from within the family. And here we have this opposition that re- arises from within. And it's this dreaded gogismos. And you think, well, that's, a, that's an ugly word. Well, that's the Greek word for a complaint, a gogismos. And it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a, a horrible word, and it's never used in a positive light throughout Scripture. And it, it expresses something of murmuring, just sort of babbling, um, uh, just sort of silent noise in the background, uh, silent undermining of, of what's going on, just a complaint and a criticism of what is happening in the church. And so there's this uh, gogismos that's happening by a group of people that are within the church. And we understand this if you're in a family. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to go there? Why do I have to take this out? Why do I have to be home at this time? Why do I have to do the dishes? There's, there's this gogismos that is part of our natural families. And sometimes it's part of our spiritual family as well. This, this sense of, 
of, of, of murmuring and complaining. And you go back into the, in, in, well, throughout the Bible, and you find this to be just not a good thing in the church. Uh, there's a number of places in, in uh, the book of Numbers, and I'll just point them out to you rather than spend a lot of time there, but just to show us that it goes way, way back amongst the people of God. And in uh, Numbers chapter 11, it says there, and the people, uh, and the people complained, they got gizmosed if you want to put it that way, in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Now, if we stop there, it would be okay, but you read on and it says, And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled against them. Grumbling and complaining is not something that brings joy to God's heart. It kindles his anger. Uh, You go uh, a little bit farther in that chapter and we find them grumbling and complaining because they don't have meat to eat. And I've been reflecting on this passage for a number of weeks in just different contexts, but the people of Israel were really ticked off because they had manna to eat and God had provided it for them every day, but they wanted meat. And so God says, okay, I'll give you meat. It's going to come out of your nostrils and it's going to come through your teeth. You'll have more meat than you ever thought you would um, want. And uh, part of that was his punishment on them for grumbling. And then you go over to another passage of Scripture, um, chapter 12 of Numbers. And there you find uh, Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who had married. For he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And then it tells how the Lord was angry with Aaron and Miriam, and in fact struck Miriam with leprosy because she grumbled against Moses. You go on uh, to another chapter, um, chapter 14, and you find the people there again rebelling. And it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they wanted a leader who would take them back to Israel. And again, God was really ticked off with the people because they were grumbling and complaining. And in fact, Moses had to step in on their behalf and pray for them. That God would not just start all over again with a new people. And so we find that this sort of this grumbling is not a positive thing either in our natural families or in the church situation. And so there was this complaint that was, that was coming up in the church. And the complaint was essentially that some people were being treated better than others. There was a group of, of, of Greek Jews that were cultured in Greek and cultured in the Greek language. And uh, there was a group of Hebraic Jews who were Arabic-speaking, and they were um, full of the, the, the Hebrew culture. And there was a daily distribution of food. And remember, we talked about how they were selling their properties and bringing it to the apostles so that they could help those in need. And so there was this daily distribution of food. And what was happening was that uh, this group of Greek Jews was um, not happy and not thinking that they were getting their fair share of the food. And so they started to complain. They started to grumble. Uh, they started to murmur. And this created quite a, uh, a, a distraction in the church. And a, apart from the fact that grumbling is just not a good thing, it created this huge distraction. And it was a distraction for the apostles, it says there. And it was, it was uh, the division that was there was bad enough, but the distraction had the potential to just stop what God had been doing amongst the people of God and in moving the Word of God forward. 
And as I was thinking about this, um, Paul says to them, he gathers them together in verse 2, um, and Peter uh, says to them, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, there was a, a threat because the balance of the family was being disrupted by this complaining and this grumbling and, and the pressure that it put on people to do things that they weren't gifted or capable of doing. So this is what was going on in this family. And then uh, we, we look at this and, and, and um, I, I wrote sort of in my margin, the family needs members who realize uh, the following three things at least. Serving others is the purpose of the church. Serving others is the purpose of the church. This is the first business meeting that I can find recorded anywhere in Scripture. And uh, they, they, they presented the, their solution to the problem. The people voted on it and agreed on it. And off they went to do what they were supposed to do. And we appointed people to serve in this congregation officially. And there's many people who serve unofficially in our congregation. But serving is at the heart of a healthy family. It's at the heart of a, a healthy natural family. A child-centered family will destroy a natural family quicker than almost anything else will do. It eats the family from the inside out. It becomes this self-focus rather than this other focus. And the same thing is for a church. The same thing is for a people of God. A me-centered mentality will turn the church into a consumer's nightmare. Because all people want is, what can the church do for me? What can it offer for me? What can it provide for me? What has the church done for me lately? Rather than, what can I do for the church? What can I do for the people of God? How can I serve the people of God? So what, what, uh, what, what, one of the things that Peter is driving at here is that for a church to be healthy and continue to grow, for a family to be healthy, it has to be service-orientated. It has to have a mentality of, how can I serve one another, not how can you minister to my particular needs. And we see that in, 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 in a couple of ways. Um, it's, it's not clearly um, revealed in English, but just so that there's not a, a distinction that's driven here between what the apostles are doing and what the, what, what the, what the people are doing to minister to those that need food, in, at the end of uh, verse 1, it says that um, there was a complaint because their widows were being neglected in the daily ministry. Or the daily service of providing food. And then you go on to verse 4 and it says there, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. It's an equal playing field. It's not that one ministry is better than another ministry. He's saying that all contribute to the health and the welfare of a particular body of Christ. And at the heart of that is serving one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is known by, by many if you're familiar with the church, and uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit farther on in the, in the New Testament. But there Paul is talking about uh, the church being a body. And he says, Therefore, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are of one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would, make, would that make it any less part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? 
But God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. And he he goes on to talk about this important interaction that takes place in a church. That we find our gifting, we find our place of ministry, we find our place of service, and we serve other people. And so at the heart of a healthy family and the heart of a healthy church are those that have the mentality of how can I serve others? Or how can I serve you? And there's other passages of scripture that we can turn to, but even as we were chatting about the children's ministry tonight, that is one area of service. It's one opportunity that you can say, I can serve the children of this church. I can serve the parents of this church. It might be making coffee after the service. I can serve the fellowship of this church. It might be mowing the lawns during the week. I can serve for the beautification of this church. There are just numerous ways in which the body of Christ uses its gifts and abilities to serve one another. And so that's one of the things that that we need to realize as members of a church. And this is what the apostles were trying to communicate at this time of real critical distraction for the church. The second thing, and I've I've made some uh, allusion to this uh, as well, is we all have an essential part to play. Um, Paul, or the apostles say here, it is not right that we give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Now, for some, that might sound like arrogance. But it is not a statement that some jobs are inferior to others. It's rather honesty. It's a way of saying, I can't do everything. I'm not gifted to do everything. Um, There are roles that you are equipped and gifted to do that I can't do. There are things that I am equipped and gifted to do that you can't do. We need one another. And what the apostles are saying here is if, if this balance gets out of whack, then the church gets out of whack. And the church begins to suffer. Um, and uh, so, so the question is, what part are you playing? Where is, where is your role of serving in the body of Christ? What is your role in adding to the health of the family of God? Sometimes it's like a, an illustration maybe of a team sport, which is better than the illustration of a family, although I I think the family suffices. But in hockey, for instance, uh, you have a a team of, I think it's 25 players on a hockey team. And if you have a hockey team and all of them are goaltenders, it's a pretty useless hockey team. Or if all of them are centermen, it's a pretty useless hockey team. Or if all of them are defensemen, again, the same thing. You need different people who understand their different roles on the team, the different strategies. There's specialists, there's generalists, there's all these people that go up to make a winning hockey team. Well, it's the same in the family of God again. That every one of us has a role or a part in which we can serve in the body of Christ. And it's important, I think, uh, in... in um, Uh, In considering this, just to remember what he says in verse 4 of chapter 6. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, It was John Stott who who wrote that the pastor is to be about prayer and preaching the word. The apostles were not too busy for ministry, he writes, but preoccupied with the wrong ministry. So are many pastors. Instead of concentrating on the ministry of the word, they become overwhelmed with administration. Sometimes it's the pastor's fault, sometimes it's the people's. In either, qua- in either cases, listen to what he says, the consequences are disastrous. 
The standards of preaching and teaching decline since the pastor has little or no time to study and pray. And the lay people do not exercise their God-given roles since the pastor does everything himself. See, there is this delicate balance that takes place within the family of God. And one of the things that, that, uh, that we will see here, and we have been seeing, is that it is so important that we maintain that balance. And one of the things that's part of that balance is the preaching of the Word of God. Is the, is the careful instruction in the Word of God. And there's such a, a pull and such a distraction to, to take away the emphasis on the preaching of the Word of God to emphasize other things. And that is a huge um, turning point in the wrong direction for a church. And then the, 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 the final point that I saw here about, um, at least for me, about what healthy members need to realize, we need to realize that serving others is the purpose of the church, that we all have a part to play, and we need to find out what that is. And there is an obligation, I think, to go beyond what is expected of us. Uh, and I, 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 for me, I, I find that in, in the notion that when they come up with this problem between the Greeks and the Hebrew Jews, you notice, you might have noticed if you are familiar with names, that of all the seven names that are listed, they're all Greek. Um, every one of the names is Greek. Now, that doesn't mean they were necessarily all Grecian Jews, but they were all Greek. And so it seems to, seems to me uh, that what they're saying is, is that we want not only the, the problem to be dealt with, but we want the perception to be that the problem is being dealt with fairly. And so we'll get seven Greeks to deal with the complaint of the Greeks against everybody else. It just seems to be the, the direction of Scripture where we're told to, um, if somebody calls us to go one mile, we go the extra mile with them. If somebody tells us to turn the right cheek, we also turn the left cheek. In other words, we go above and beyond the duty and the expectations of what people have on us. And so we have these, these sort of description of what a healthy family looks like. And then we have uh, sort of an understanding of, of what are the qualifications. It's not just enough for a right solution to be made for this problem, which has arisen. You need the right people to implement it. And Luke tells us about the people that were selected. He says they're both practically wise and spiritually gifted. And I think that is so important because, again, we are, we are not just dealing with practical situations. We are in spiritual realities. And we need to have people who understand the spiritual realities that we're up against. And so uh, the first thing that I, that I see in here is we need siblings who are under the influence of God. He says, I want you to pick people who are full of the Holy Spirit or full of faith. I don't know, how would you, how would you tell that somebody is full of faith? Let, let me just ask that. How would you tell that somebody is full of the Spirit and full of faith? If you had to pick somebody, what would you look for and say, that person's full of the Spirit or they're full of faith? Peace and joy. Peace and joy. So they're characterized maybe by the fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, they're growing in their life. So, so yeah, that person, boy, they've got a constitution that is Godlike. What else might you say that somebody is full of the Spirit? Their relationships with others. They're healthy. 
They're, so they're, they're patient, they're forgiving, they're, they're, they're evidence that sanctification is taking place in their heart. Uh, you know, as the, as the scripture says, you put off anger and malice and hatred and you put on kindness and gentleness and forgiveness. And so, yes, they're relationships with one another. So people who, who get along with other people. Uh, what else might you look for that somebody that's under the influence of the Spirit? Dedication. Yeah, they're, they're dedicated to the things of God. Like they, they're not sort of, um, when they hit up a hard time, they don't just abandon things and run away. They're committed to the long haul. And, and that's something of the influence of God in a person's life that allows them to stick at it. Anything else that sticks to your mind that you might say, yes, that person is full of the Spirit of, uh, 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 full of, the spirit of God. Oh, they have, yeah. They have a servant's heart, Gilbert. I think that's, that's so true. Because isn't that what Philippians 2 says? Where it says, have this attitude in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who set aside equality with God and became a servant, even though, to the point of death. And so one who is full of the Spirit is one who is concerned about the needs of others. They're not just concerned about themselves. Anything else that pop into your head about um, uh, somebody uh, detecting somebody who is Full of the Spirit or full of faith? What they talk about. What they talk about. Um, fill it just a little bit, Jody. Uh, basically, if, if, if you're uh, having a conversation with someone, they kind of ask questions about it. Yeah. So, yeah. It, where, where's their mind at? Because the scripture says, set your things or set your mind on things above where Christ is. And, and it doesn't mean that we're so heavily minded that we're no earthly good. But, but those who are full of the Spirit are those who are aware of um, the Word of God and are discussing it and are defending it and are standing for it. And I, I think, you know, what I would wrap all of these up in another way is that people that are full of the Spirit are those that are led by the Spirit. Or they walk in the Spirit. So their relationships, their words... Their attitudes, they all demonstrate that there is something about this person that demonstrates a transformation by the Spirit of God. And so they look for, for, for siblings who are under the influence of God. That is so critical. And that's what we've been talking about in part in the book of Acts, to be Spirit-filled people, to allow the Spirit of God to change us from the inside out. I think the, the second thing that he says in there is that uh, that I read in there is that family members ought to use common sense. It's not just about being spiritual. I have met people who are, uh, who are, who are spiritual, but they don't have a wit of common sense. They're impractical. They're insensitive. They, they, they have no ability to interact with the day-in, day-out problems that a church family faces. And so they don't have this, this balance. And so he says they're men of good reputation and they're full of wisdom. In other words, they're free of scandal. Um, they were looked upon by others as being people of integrity. They're, they're faithful. They're well attested. They're, they're trusted. They don't have any blemish. They're, 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 they're people who, who others might not like them, but they say that person is a person of Christ. That person is one of good reputation. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't cheat. You know, they, they are, they are a, a, a true blue friend when things go tough. And not only this, they were wise. They knew what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. 
So not only do they have um, spiritual insight and spiritual health and spiritual um, maturity, but they had common sense and they had good sense. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and apply it. There's a lot of people who know a lot of stuff, but they have absolutely no skill in applying that stuff to daily life. And so what, 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 what the apostles are saying here is look for people who not only have knowledge, but they have the wisdom to apply it. They are people who do the right things in the right ways. There is the wrong way to do the right thing. And so he says, these are people that are characterized by doing the right things in the right ways. They are people that don't create fallout wherever they go. There are some people who, who just, it's like, a, it, it's just like you're mopping up after them wherever they go. They're wonderfully spiritual people, but they're like porcupines. They just, they just hurt people wherever they go. They have no ability to be gentle and to be smooth. And I, I think um, there are people whose approach to problems and situations does not alienate people, but it wins them. It brings them into the fold. It, it brings them alongside. And so Paul is, the, the apostle is saying, this is the kind of people that you need to look for. And I think, by, by, by just as an aside, if this is the kind of people they're to look for, then this is the kind of people we ought to be becoming, is it not? We ought to be those who, who say, God, would you fill me with your spirit? Father, I, I'm having trouble with some areas of anger and impatience. Would your spirit take over in my life and give me patience where I have no patience and give me forgiveness where I have no forgiveness. Father, would you, would you allow the Spirit to do the work of sanctification in my life and change me? Would you fill my head with an understanding of your Scripture? We pray that kind of stuff. We pray, Father, uh, would you fill me with the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so this is what we aspire to as well as God's people. That increasingly all of us would be those that are recognized as people who are full of the Spirit, who are full of faith, who are full of wisdom, who have a good reputation um, around us. And I I think it's also important to notice that, um, or for me, and it's sort of an aside issue, that spiritual growth um, doesn't just happen over time. One of the strangest things that I've observed, and it's a frustrating thing that I've observed, there are some people who have been Christ followers for 15, 20, 30 years, and they're not much farther along the path 30 years from when they started two days after following Christ. And then there are some people who, for whatever reason, within a year, they have just like vaulted ahead in their walk in their relationship with Jesus. And I think part of it comes from realizing that spiritual growth doesn't just happen. It's something that you intentionally set out to, to walk more like Christ, to be led more by the Spirit, to, to be a more a person of the Word of God. Um, what if we were as, as strategic about our faith as we were about our physical fitness? We have diets that we follow. We have workout regimes that we pattern our life after. We go to the gym three or four or five times a week. We watch how many calories we put in so that we can have a healthy body so that we don't get exhausted when we climb up a set of stairs. What if we were to be as strategic about our spiritual life as we were about our physical life? 
What if we were to be as strategic about our, our, our spiritual life as we were about our financial well-being? Some people spend hours and hours a day plotting out their financial future, checking what the stock markets are doing, checking their bank accounts. What if we applied that same discipline in learning about the financial markets that we, that we, uh, that we, and, and do that in our spiritual life? And I think it's th- those are the things that I've noticed that people who, who become serious and strategic about following Jesus, they're ones that seem to grow in leaps and bounds. Um, and so the amazing thing, and this is where we, we bring it to the end, and I think, Dan, I'm sorry about this, but I think we'll probably do question and answer time next week, um, which is kind of good, because I told my wife I was terribly nervous tonight about doing that, but time is running out, um, too bad. <laughs> uh, if you have a question that you really like, uh, write it down, uh, but, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll try and work it in next week. Um, but the, the final thing here... <laughs> the, the, you don't know how intimidating it is, you know, and, and what's he doing? That's okay, Paul. See, I can't see. I'm blind as a bat. Um, but uh, as we sort of wrap this all together, the amazing thing that I, that I find is when the, when the family um, functions properly, uh, particularly the church family, it just continues to grow in leaps and bounds. And when people understand their roles and when, 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 when people understand where they fit and where the church functions properly as a family and as a body, it just begins to continue to explode. And you look at verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase. Notice that. Because the, 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 the Satan's strategy was in part to stop the word of God. To distract the apostles so they didn't have time to prayer. Uh, for prayer and to preach the word of God. And so it's not a bad thing to serve at tables, but it was to get them off their game and to get them away from the word of God. And we've been seeing how the word of God is so central to the growth of the church. It's through the word of God that people realize their need of God. It's through the word of God that people realize that they're separated from him, that they're sinners, and that Christ has come to save them and give them a way out. And if we're no longer preaching the word of God and talking about the word of God at church, then we might do a lot of good things, but how are people ever going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? How are they ever going to continue growing in their walk with God? And so we see in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. It almost says that the word of God has a life of its own. And isn't that true? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, uh, The word of God is eternal. Um, uh, flowers fade and grass, grass withers, but the word of God will last forever. And so it says that as they, as they structured their church properly, as they dealt with this devilish distraction that came in in, in an attempt to disrupt the church, and they got back to doing what everyone was supposed to do, finding their role, that the word of God increased. And amazingly, the number of disciples multiplied greatly. See what's happening? The church is still functioning. The needs of the people of of God are still being met, but everyone's doing their role, and the apostles continue to preach, and they continue to talk about Jesus, and they continue to talk about the Word of God, and as a result, people still come to faith, and the number of disciples multiplies. And what's even more amazing is it says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
It was the priests that were the ones that were persecuting the apostles. It was the priests and the religious leaders who were trying to shut down the word of God. And rather than shutting it down, the word of God was increasing and even they were becoming obedient to the faith. And so it's just um, sort of one of my ways of continuing to remind you that we all have a role to play. And that as long as I am here as, as, as a as pastor in the church, whether it's two weeks or whether it's two years or whether it's 20 years, it will be my desire and my aim and, and my emphasis to try not to be distracted from studying and preaching the Word of God and to releasing you into ministries to see the, the work of God go forward in this community. Because as we do that, we will see many added to the faith. And we will see disciples uh, multiply amongst us. And we will see the word of God mightily increase in our midst.